Welcome to Culture Matters, a podcast exploring the intersection of faith and culture. All right, I'm Adam Hawkins, and I'm here with special guest Kyle Worley. He's joining us again because today we're continuing our series on the future of the church, and we're landing the plane in some ways on denominations. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> see. We're gonna. Not only are going to are we gonna describe our current cultural moment with denominations, but we're also gonna offer what the future looks like. So, um, if you haven't, go back and listen to the last episode, or this one's probably not gonna make a ton of sense. Uh, so it, we're excited. We're excited you're listening, and I'm excited you're here with us. Before we jump into today's topic, I just want to say again, this is Kyle Worley. He's with us. He's amazing. He is a pastor at Mosaic. He is also the producer and one of the hosts of Knowing Faith, which is a better podcast than Culture Matters, so <laughs> yeah. check it out. Um, Kyle, uh, so here's here's where we were. We kind of tried to trace this really complex history of denominations and the institutions they've spawned, sure. and what we're trying to do is say, okay, now what I, I want us to do is we've, we've taken this history and say, okay, what are we left with? Where are we today? Yep. And then to say, what are some of the solutions people are offering going forward? What do we think it's going to look like going forward? Mm-hmm. And then what is what are we as church members? What are the listeners? Why? What should they be concerned about? So first is to say, where are we? We described this complex history. We described a buildup and then kind of decline might be the wrong word, but a uh, something, problems yeah. manifesting to where we are today, which is you have at least among the main lines, you have a consistent declining numbers. You have a seeming inability, uh, maybe that's, some might disagree, but to grapple with the um, political process in America as a denomination. What are we supposed to do? What's that supposed to look like? Uh, It looks like there's a lot of fits and starts and failures there. You have in some ways, it seems, an inability to deal with the crises that are in front of us. Right. Uh, And then you have strange responses to those. So what, what what would you, if you had to describe the current state of denominations in their institutions today, what would, what would you say? I would say that we are at an inflection point, a reckoning, a, a fork in the road when it comes to whether or not we believe as a country and as a group of people that institutions are viable. Yeah. That's and a bigger question than denominations, right? For sure. Right. And it's underneath this. And it's been yes. a part of the conversation for the last, you know, 50 or 60 years. Yeah. Um, there, you know, starting in the mid 20th century, there begins to be a kind of institutional disillusionment. You can tie this to the failings of America. You can tie this to the consolidation of power or wealth. You can tie it to the failings of the Vietnam War. Uh, you can tie it to the issue of civil rights in America, the sexual revolution. I mean, there's right lots of different causal agents, but there's no doubt that one of the, the key effects or impacts is there is a concern that institutions, any place where there's power consolidated, should not be trusted. This is philosophical. Mm-hmm. It is also uh, existential. It's philosophical in that there are big schools of thought that in the 20th century across the world are calling into question whether or not power can even be wielded for good. So there's that's the philosophical engine. Right. It's existential in that the world seems to have greater consolidations of power and yet be worse. Right. 
at least in the lived experience of some individuals. Let's take a step back, because what we never did is we never kind of evaluated a theology of denominations, or sure. even, we've never said, okay, is it, are institutions good? Would the Bible say institutions are good? Should we eschew them? Uh, do we agree with sure. the world's assessment that power cannot be wielded for good? No. I mean, the right. Bible, uh, Adam and Eve are given the commission in the garden to cultivate and subdue. The story of Scripture begins in a garden and ends in a city, which is a certainly more cultivated place, right. a more uh, centralized place. And so I don't think it's bad to say that institutions can be good if institutions are good. <laughs> Good institutions are good. Bad institutions are bad. Every institution that exists at present is the work of image bearers who are a mixture of brokenness and beauty. Right, they're fractured image right. bearers. So they are meant to cultivate and subdue. Some institutions have greater expressions of beauty. Some institutions have greater expressions of brokenness. Do you think the church? So w- one thing we're talking about at Citizens right now is how alternative stories mm-hmm. have infected the local church, and sure. we've seen that especially during COVID. Sure, uh, alternative stories about how disembodied fellowship is good, sure. uh, consumerism, sure. uh, materialism, etc. There's mil- there's a bunch, and we're kind of taking those and and redefining or not, or, or just you know putting our foot down again on. Um, what the local church is and and what that should look like and how they combat the alternative stories. Would you say as it relates to denominations or institutions that there is a sect of the church or a portion of the church who has bought into the... um, alternative story about institutions? Yeah, one way or the other. Either that institutions should be safeguarded at all costs and right. never reckoned with. That's good. Yep. That's one. I would say that would be the what we might call the traditional view right. or protectorate view right. of institutions would be institutions are always good and they should never be questioned. Right. Uh, that is probably associated with the political right in America. Right. Okay. Um, the other story, which certainly has more cultural cachet but is not as effective operationally. Right. Um, is that, I mean, you can see it. It's like every, like, it's like when Nike eschews institutions, you're right. like, wait. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, cool. remember Steve Jobs built a global capitalist empire yeah. off of an ad against institutions. <laughs> so, you know, oh. it's, there, there, there's a lot of hypocrisy on both sides of this. Sure. But uh, the story on the other side, the other false story is that institutions are irredeemable. And are, any consolidation of power is, reparab- is irreparably corrupt. Those, these are both false stories. God has created us as image bearers to do good things. Uh, what's a very basic biblical example of a corrupt form of institution building? Oh, Tower of Babel. Mm. You don't even get to Genesis 11, get to like the halfway point of Genesis. <laughs> and uh, people have bonded together to to create something, to cultivate something they could not do on their own, to literally build a thing to get to the heavens. Now, what was wrong there? Well, the, wrong, the wrongness was their motivation. Mm. The wrongness was their intention. The wrongness was their execution. Like all of those things. Right. But you can't argue. They were pretty effective in like, they weren't effective in getting to God. Sure. The story makes it very clear. They're nowhere close. Yeah. Um, but they built something big. Yeah. I mean, big enough to take note, you know? Yeah, right. <laughs> right? Uh, and so, but r- what happens in the next chapter? God promises to build an institution out of Abraham's family. Right. See, what man wants to seize by might, God gives by grace. And if the motivation of an institution is consolidation of power for arrogant, evil, deceptive, duplicitous, corrupt, you know, effects or goals— 
God will seek to thwart that and his people should seek to oppose it. Mm. But if an institution is built for the purposes of advancing something good, even if it has elements of brokenness, um, then uh, there there can be some good things that God does through it. So let's diagnose a little bit then where we are, because I don't know that the story of denominations is one or the other, is it? No, I mean, a lot of denominations are formed at least, I, I say a lot, some denominations have been formed for theological agendas that we would say are like are really healthy. Yeah. I mean, the denomination I'm in, that was not the case. Right. <laughs> I mean, so I mean, I can't speak to every denomination. I would say that the formation of the Southern Baptist Convention was not formed on the healthiest ground. Right. I don't think any critical scholar of the Southern Baptist history would say that. Yeah. Um, but it still exists. It still exists. And it's done good things. Right. It's done good things. So there are people in an institution like the Southern Baptist Convention who are asking, huh, can this institution be reformed? Can mm-hmm. it be leveraged for change? Can the good be celebrated and the bad be criticized? Yeah. And yet the two extreme ideologies that have emerged in our current moment over right. the last 50 or 60 years is that either this institution has to be thrown down mm-hmm. or this institution has to be protected at all cost. You can't affect meaningful change in any institution if the two dominant camps are either don't touch this thing, Mm -hmm. it's sacred, or throw this thing down, it's profane. What happens when – because tell me if I'm wrong, but – and I I think we've seen this in other – look at um, the Methodist church right now. They just split, right? There was just a split that happened. So you don't just have to look at the SBC. That is split over some moral questions, questions about human sexuality, et cetera. You're seeing that a lot, right? Sure. Um, But my point again is when the two dominant sides become Uh entrenched in the loudest voices in any denomination, uh, my my – well, what I would argue is that's what happened in the has happened to some degree in the sure. SBC, at least, and probably other denominations. The outcomes are never really good, though, right? When that <laughs> happens, yeah. I mean, listen, there are times when division is necessary, sure, for differentiation. So, like in the conservative resurgence, conservative resurgence was a huge movement in the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, the denomination had uh, was in a liberal theological drift. Right. Basic. And by this, I don't mean like crazy ideas. I mean like denying the virgin birth. Right. Denying the historicity of the resurrection. Right. Denying the inspiration of God's word. These are fundamental things. Right. These are creedal things. Okay. And uh, there were a group of conservatives that using the political apparatuses of that institution Mm -hmm. changed the direction. Right. Now, that itself, good thing. Right. I'm I'm glad for it. Now, there's a lot of questioning. Was the method that they used effective? Or was it holy? Right. Was it always above board? Yeah. No. Right. It was not. Um, and some of the repercussions of that event have, have created uh, some of the situation we find ourselves in now, which is that we answered some real theological concerns and united ourselves around some theological realities, but not did not have larger conversations on what is our moral and political vision Right. as an organization. And subsequently, now we find ourselves in a spot where we are mirroring the culture's division, uh, embodying it. Even. Right. Because we are people immersed in the culture. Right. So it's not a surprise that we get together as an institution and go, man, this is the big sweeping wind of our current cultural moment. You know, We'll extricate ourselves from it. That's impossible. We're swimming in the water. We're yeah. breathing in the air. And, so, and if I could just say one yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. 
On the note of institutions, I, you know, I recommended a book in the first episode that we did on this, Tom Holland's Dominion. I, if I could recommend anybody, if you're interested in institutions, I would say that the person that I would say right now is thinking about this in a really healthy way is Yuval Levin. Mm-hmm. And he's got two books, Fractured Republic and A Great. Time to Build. Right. Both of those books are dealing – he is squarely in the political space, but it has big implications uh, for the um, – for for the rest of uh, uh, kind of institutional life. And then I would say the other person who's become a Christian thinker on this that just I think is, and a book that does not get enough attention. I think it is the best book written on power, mm. Playing God by Andy Crouch. Okay. That book, if listen, if you are going, if you want to have a meaningful conversation at this point on the question of institutions and power and whether power is redeemable mm. or every centralization of power is bad, and you want to have that conversation with me, you're going to have to grapple with that book. That's great. It is, I think, it is his most overlooked book and his most... Well, maybe we'll have you back on the show and we'll talk about that in general. Because that or maybe I, we can get him to come on. Or maybe we could get him to come on too. But what I would say is like, I also think there's a question of power, maybe not dislocated from denominations, but in general right now, another thing that is being questioned, like you brought up, is the conception of power, and it is having reverberations throughout church all over the place. Absolutely. You know, uh, church polity questions, obviously, and a million others. So um, I think it's a really important one, but, but, uh, but bringing us back. Yeah, bringing sorry. us no 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 I think these are really good and I I too uh not that you need my um echo but I I learned so much from reading Yuval Levin. Yep. Learned so much from reading him. Um so you know you describe this place we're at now with 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 denominations are they failing? I don't know that I can speak to all of them. I would say that there is a grave concern that denominations are once again, and maybe they've just never, maybe they, it just happened and, uh, or it was always happening and, and our eyes are just drawn to it now because of the political and social extremities of our current moment. But they certainly seem to be subject to the headwinds of culture and political life in America. Right. In a way in which they seem either they reflect them or they're subservient to them. They there there is very little countercultural denominational witness. Right. Now that's tough in the free church traditions because many of the free church traditions like Southern Baptists for example, uh, they, it's a non-hierarchical form of denominational life. So like what the Southern Baptist Convention does. Right does not mean citizens can or can't be something. Right. Or mosaic can or can't be something. Right. We can be countercultural witnesses in our community, in our city, in our country, all of those things. Um, and we might have a different uh, posture towards political power, the political conversation, social things. But as a denomination, I wouldn't say that there are many denominations that are flying in the headwinds of the primary cultural narratives. They're either putting their chips in on one or the other. Right. So you have some denominations who have basically kowtowed. They have uh, bent down to the uh, false narrative of uh, what I would say the radical ideology of the left. Right. Okay. Now, when we start talking about left and right, just know you might think that something is radical. I may not, whatever. What I'm talking about, I'm talking about the spirit of radical, unquestionable individual autonomy in all matters. Right. That's the radical ideology of the left. Right. Radical, independent, unquestionable autonomy for every individual. Right. I would say that's baseline, okay? Uh, there are some denominations that have basically said, okay, great, yeah, we're in on that. 
because that, that is this, that is one of the spirits of our age. Right. The other spirit of our age is a, a kind of institutional or traditional protectionism. Mm. which is that uh, we need to be very cautious that we don't lose the um, political power, might uh, of traditional institutional life in America. Mm. And I would say there are some denominations right now that have said, yep, that's where we're at. We don't want to lose that at all. We don't want to lose the political privileges that attends to it. We don't want to lose the social cohesiveness that it affords. We don't want to lose the the group ideology. Uh, We don't want to lose the moral formative nature of it. We don't want to lose the corporate nature of it, whatever. Right. There are not many denominations that are going, uh, I have no king but the Lord Jesus, you know? Right. <laughs> I mean, there are some that are thinking through it, and right. there are many that would say that. Right. But in terms of the cultural life of those institutions, no. I mean, everybody right now is looking at the two sides of mm. this conversation mm. and going, which side are we going to pick? One of the things I'm seeing right now that is really fascinating to me is within evangelical culture itself, because of Church 2 and the failures of the church, because of um, the instability of the institutions that Mm -hmm. we belong to, either because they're going one way or the other, they're bowing to uh, one of the powers that you just talked about. Um, there's a sense in which they're asking this question, so what do we do? And what I've seen is the mainline trying to double down, but yeah. it's but it's coming out in the evangelical church. Look, mainline expressions, like kind of the more progressive expressions of church, have always been there and kind of shouted at sure. the more conservative church mm-hmm. f- forever. It doesn't always happen from the inside. And sure. one thing that's unique about the moment, like you have... Um, Within evangelicalism, you have people talking about things like inerrancy sure. and whether inerrancy is, uh, you know, whether that's a doctrine we should hold to. You have people questioning uh, any hierarchical power whatsoever. Sure. You have people questioning all kinds of things, right? Yeah. And the answer sometimes or many times being floated is progressive answers. Sure. There's also the other side of yep. that. Um it seems like what happened recently with the SBC, which I could be wrong about this, honestly, but it seemed like there was this sort of conservative, um, some people are calling it like a neo-fundamentalist thing sure. that saw the, if I was trying to paint it as fairly as possible, mm-hmm. that saw some of this questioning yep. uh, f- f- um, you know, in these progressive answers being put forth, and they reacted to it really strong, right? Uh, you had another side who was saying, yeah, but look at the failures, look at the failures, look at the failures. We need to make changes. We need to do something. Some saying we need to burn this thing down, whatever. And I, it felt like there was not a lot of the middle. And yet, sure. and yet somebody won and it's still happening. I don't know what's happening. Yeah, I guess, yeah. you know, bef- I guess just to put the nail in where we are, um, I, if I were to describe it, what I would say is, uh, it feels like a death. I don't think, if I was to describe where we are, it's not like things are about to get really good, and it's not like things are really clear, and Christians everywhere are standing up and saying, we have no king but Jesus. It's more like what you just said. Uh, Some people are saying, we're going to go all in for power, and some people are saying, we need to burn all the institutions down. And I care... If I'm honest with you, it's like denominations, it's like, ah, maybe, maybe not. But the idea of associating at all, right, yep. um, starts to become 
scary. I don't know. What's going to be left? Well, that's for, I mean, gosh, yeah. Uh, and it's not optimistic, but I would say that there is a question of whether or not collaboration and cooperation can happen any longer because it necessarily involves convictionally driven compromise. Right. And there is a question of whether or not one can even have convictions any longer and what convictions can be like where you are uh, free to compromise on the basis of your convictions. The Baptists have, like many denominations, a doctrinal statement. Yeah. That speaks to some things and doesn't speak to other things. Yeah. They have that doctrinal statement because they're trying to outline the core convictions while creating space for meaningful compromise for the purposes of collaboration. Mm. And Southern Baptist life, I can't speak to all denominations, that collaboration is really revolving around three things. Theological education, church planting domestically, and church planting internationally. Mm. Those are the big three things that Southern Baptists are interested in compromising to collaborate for. Right. There is a question over what convictions should be there. I would say both sides of the current divide in the Southern Baptist Convention are including more things in that conviction category than their current documents allow for. Yeah. And because of that, whether it's political partisanship or some sort of contemporary answer to a contemporary question, they're drawing firmer lines than their doctrinal statement allows for. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and that happens on both sides. Right, right. Now, this is not just a right thing or a left thing. Right. It's both. And so because of that, there is no ability. And Yuval Levin, and I've already mentioned him, but one of the things he puts his finger on the pulse for, and he doesn't say it like this, but this is what I would say. Our institutions in a radically individualistic age, particularly in the, in the digital age, of uh, everything is broadcast all the time, have become performatively transparent mm. without being formative in nature. And performative transparency is different. Like if you and I were like, if I, if I told you, Adam, Adam, I want to have an honest conversation with you about your marriage, but I'd like to record it and disseminate it to 100,000 people. Uh, <laughs> It's not outside the realm of possibility that I could engage in that conversation with integrity and honor. Mm. But there I would know I would be undertaking that conversation knowing the audience is bigger than you. Right. So when we broadcast the executive committee meeting of the SBC online, we can call it that's transparent. But in an internet age, you're performing for your tribe. Right. So you have to keep that posture because you're going to lose or gain social points based off of your performance. Right. We see this in the political landscape was, all the yeah. time, right? Which is like we think about uh, broadcasting all congregate uh, all um, congressional and and senate meetings as a as a uh, absolutely good thing, right? Which, yeah, I mean, if everybody was behaving as like uh, best in my, uh, we all have our best intentions at heart yeah. uh, as a collective witness, and if they weren't going to be devoured publicly for what they might do, well, then yeah, broadcast it because everybody is operating off of a, a view of the common good. Right. But in a radical partisan age, in a radical ideological age, people are not willing to compromise on anything. So any compromise that you're going to do, I mean, what did the Tea Party run on a few years ago? Fiscal responsibility. Yeah, fiscal responsibility and political the, and, the, yes. and the threat of political compromise right. with those who are not. Right. So it's basically like anybody that was like, we vote to elevate the debt ceiling was like, they're a traitor. Get right. them out. Right. You know? Right. So it's like there was no compromise allowable. Right. I'm not saying that you can't have a view of economic policy or of some matter of the SBC life that's different from my own. Right. It's that we have a charter agreement that is supposed to be operating off of some view of collective good. Right either as an institution, a denomination, whatever. 
And there are convictions that are maybe more specific or less specific. Mm. That space that's created there is built for the interplay of power and collaboration so that we can do some things together that we could not do if we just said, you have to think exactly like I do in all matters. So it seems like, but to your point earlier, uh, that intentional space that was built in um, seems to be ignored, uh, run over. Sure. Um, and I guess what I'm trying, what I'm, the question is, um, it's taken on the flavor of the intense, um, uh, bipartisan age, sure. the radical bipartisan age. What's, what do you, what are people saying, you know, you or others, as you look at it, what are people saying about the future of Christ, Christian institutions? Let's broaden it a little bit. Like we can talk about the ones that exist now, you know, again, there's now there's these parachurch things or these networks. Sure. It seems like people kind of just said, I don't want to do the denominational thing anymore. So sure. it seems like at least in some of our circles, it seems like networks are more influential yep. and, um, uh, solid and steady, and sure. maybe the ones saying we believe in no one but King Jesus, sure. uh, we bow to no one but King Jesus. It seems like they've some of these networks have taken that on. Um, what's so? But what's the future for the aging, uh, if I could be so provocative, crumbling mm -hmm. institutions of Christianity? Yeah, I mean, I think that we'll have to ask the question of what institutions are necessary. That's that's it. What institutions are necessary? Because there are a lot of like, for example. When, we, when many denominations were formed around planting churches or sending people internationally to plant churches, travel was harder. Right. It just was. It was more expensive. It was harder to get there. I mean, 1845 was different than 2020. <laughs> sure. Uh, so uh, what kind of denominational apparatuses are necessary in our current moment? What kind of institutions are helpful and beneficial? We still, we basically are offering, uh, operating off the presumption that every aspect of denominational life that we've had is still essential for denominational life. Mm. That's not true. Right. Um, and so we don't think about that in any kind of part of our landscape as like, we none of us are like, oh, wow, you know, we definitely need to continue to prioritize like postage. Like, I'm not saying that postage is irrelevant. I'm just saying, like, you and I, when we think about our our budgets for the churches that we lead, we probably don't factor in high postage. Right, right. But 40 years ago, you couldn't have imagined a communication structure as a church that did not factor in right. significant postage cost. It's not the way anymore. Yeah. The same is true for our denominational life in many matters. What is happening, though, is that the, the, the principal moment where we need to be reinvesting, reinvigorating, recalculating the various kind of apparatuses of our institutional life, there's also a reckoning that has to happen to some of the moral, spiritual, and existential core of those institutions. And the problem is none of this is happening. Right. <laughs> so it's not just that like, the, the problem is not just a problem of institutional reckoning that should happen. There is institutional reckoning that should happen. Right. And uh, it should happen in a way that is uh, renewing, reinvigorating, and reforming. Right. And conducive and congruent with the essential convictions of that institution. Right? right. If not, they're operating outside of the scope of their charter. And right. They're basically, now you're talking about a totally new thing. Right. At the same time that this has to happen, this reckoning, and in a time in which there's intense public pressure because of the internet to do that very thing, mm. and intense scrutiny over the wins or losses of right. doing that thing, 
there is a new calculus that has to emerge on what institutions we need and what they need to be doing. That's a really good point. And the problem is neither of these things are happening. Yeah. It's not just that one of them's not happening. It's that neither of them are happening. In other words, you know, the questions about the future right now, talking about responding long-term to the implications of how COVID's going to change everything, right? Uh, Talking about your very point about like, hey, in order to plant churches, what do we need to focus on? Uh, In order to, you know, reach a secularizing West, what should we be focusing on? It's like, no... There are, I think there are probably some more parachurch kind of things, people talking about it. I mean, I think of like city to city and some of these things who've written books on how to do, you know, how to church plant in these environments. And it seems like denominations are just certain denominations, old, are just behind the eight ball. Well, let me give you an example. We, you know, um, and this is not an indictment on this degree model. It made sense at a certain time. Sure. And now it doesn't make sense any longer. Sure. Um, But like we still have seminaries where uh, tuition is being subsidized for camp ministries degrees. Wow. And a post-Christian West, I wonder, do the denominational resources that we have need to go to alleviating the tuition of camp ministry degrees? Right. right. That's an ever-thinning slice of the pie. Like, right, right. Is that what we're underwriting? Right. Uh, I'm not saying that camp ministry is bad. No. I profited from camp ministry. I don't know that a denomination needs to be subsidizing that work. Right. We're subsidizing that work in the very same time we're launching out pastors that are crippled by student loan debt. Right. Something is off there. Right. In a post-Christian West. Now, in a time in which we were at our boom. Right. Oh, yeah, launch. I mean, get get them out there, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, things are great. And yeah. There's probably a long line of jobs for camp ministry positions. Right. We don't need that any longer. Right. So the, that's a conversation that has to happen. Right. But sorry, there's also camp, this, sorry, campers. No, I love camp ministry. I just don't know that you need a four-year Subsi- degree. Yeah, right. Or to subsidize um, it, right? Or to yeah. subsidize yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, I don't know that it's, it's mission... It's missiologically urgent. Yeah, mission critical, you would even say. Right. Um, And uh, like, I'm sure it'd be great. Like, I'm sure you enjoy yourself a lyrical dance. Yeah. If you hired somebody full-time at Citizens right now to just do lyrical dance and worship. Right. You know, some might want you to do that, uh, but uh, you might do e- not contact. You me. might even you might even enjoy that. But I would imagine you have other missional cr- critical right. objectives, right? Okay, so uh, so there's that. That's one conversation that has to happen for institutions to to seem viable to people, right? Because when like when uh, when I take very enterprising, entrepreneurial, business minded leaders and lift up the hood of the SBC life to them, <laughs> yeah. They're not impressed. No. Um, and they're concerned because they go, is this solvent? Like on the long term. Right. So there's that. The, the second thing is that there's real reckoning that has to happen with moral and spiritual problems. Amen. Abuse. Sexual abuse is the clearest one Amen. from the last two years. Right. Which is uh, in 2020, uh, uh, excuse me, in 2021, the messengers spoke basically Clearly. unanimously right. that there needed to be a transparent uh, third party, third party investigation into actions of the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention, right, and where they should waive privilege, attorney-client privilege, right. Um, that's how the uh, that's how the messengers detailed that transparency. We just recently had an executive committee meeting where it was questioned and it was voted against at a clip of like seventy percent, right, against waiving privilege. That is one that presents a moral problem, which is under what circumstances should a group of Christian leaders say, we don't want to get to the truth because it might make us legally liable? Right. So there's that's one question. Right. That's a moral and spiritual question, which is how callous does a heart have to be? Right. The second one is a polity question. 
hold on. The, the, I don't know if you know this, and you, you probably don't because it's it's hidden um, uh, and it's 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 not widely understood. But the SBC functions at the will of the messengers. The highest form of governance in the SBC, purportedly is what the messengers vote on at their annual meeting once a year. So in this sense, the denomination on all of its entities and all of its leaders are subservient to the will of the messengers who spoke unanimously and resoundingly about a transparent third-party investigation. And then the executive committee, a small group of SBC leaders said no. So that is a question of, can this institution even be changed by its own political levers? Almost saying the parliamentary process is broken. Sure. And so here's the here's so here's the the this is why I think it's like kind of death nail stuff for these crumbling institutions. Um, they almost are unable to get out of their own way, and there's a sense in which you're saying they're not answering the most fundamental, the the really serious questions. They're not doing the reckoning that needs to get done. And so t- to your point, my I wonder in churches like ours if people would even care. <laughs> Some would now. Yeah. I, I'm, it's the point you brought up, which is okay. Why did why? Okay, yeah. Oh, we're in the SBC. Interesting. Why do I care about any of what you just said? Right. I don't. I don't need to be a part of that. We don't have to be a part of it to church plant. We don't have to be a part of it to blah blah blah. On and on and on. We don't have to be a part of it to answer the f- serious questions that face us as a local church community. Sure. And we can partner in other networks that we actually feel a lot more comfortable with. We know them better. We're more culturally kind of a better fit. Sure. We can just go do that. So I that's why I don't think, and I know that's, I want to be careful because I know there are people who care deeply, reform deeply sure. in SBC environments or other, you know, PCA environments or other environments, right? But my point is, is exactly what you said. If... I think there are a lot of at least the next generation of Christians coming up, many who are kind of saying, um, "What we're not trying to answer the question of why the PCA is necessary, why the SBC is necessary, why Anglicanism is necessary." It's a little different because their polity is a little sure. different, but why why is this denomination necessary? And also, they're unwilling to re- to reckon with the past. So I'll just, it's what you said. Oh, I look under the hood. I'm not going to buy that car, you know, yeah. and, and, and in a way. So I, that, I think that's why I'm a little bit cynical about it. And to your point, can you even change it? What's, you know, to mobilize a church to be all about the SBC, all about a denomination, to mobilize that church towards that action takes a lot of work and effort, et cetera. Absolutely. So if a pastor's not convinced that he's going to send messengers and anyone's going to listen anyways, then Why? Right? Isn't yeah. that I, I, maybe no. I'm missing the mark? No, no, no. But. I mean, I think that, and one thing we haven't got to spend as much time on is just there is a biblical model and principle of collaboration and partnership. That this is really important. I yeah. think we should. I think we should probably land here. So, de- like denominations and networks haven't emerged because you know it's just like you know a, somebody's good idea. Right. It's that in the New Testament we see a model of church cooperation and participation. Right. And different denominations have tried to answer this or or embody this is probably a better word, uh, in different ways. And in Baptist life, they've done that through local church autonomy and voluntary cooperation. Mm. A lot of, and there are other free church traditions that do this. But th- what that means is that like, for example, Citizens Church is currently an SBC church, correct? Right. So is Mosaic. Right. We're sisterly churches. But if Citizens said something crazy, if Adam Hawkins got up on a Sunday and said, uh, to, to be a Christian, everybody has to wear pink all the time. 
I'm using something Might silly like that. so that yeah. it's not, you know, divisive. Yeah. But uh, everybody has to wear pink all the time to be a Christian. And somebody at Mosaic came to me and said, hey, this other Southern Baptist church said everybody has to wear pink all the time to be a Christian. Do we have to? I'd say, no. Right. And they would say, but that pastor said, he's a pastor in the SBC. I would say, he's not a pastor at this church. Right. 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 He's wrong, A. Uh, uh, B, it's not binding on you. Right. And nor would it be binding on any other SBC church. The SBC functions like this top down, meaning like if the SBC does something, you know, wild and citizens can, they can go, yeah, that's not us. Yep. And if they do something really wild or heterodox, like they say, uh, Jesus Christ is, is no longer the only son of God. He was one of 15 sons of God. <laughs> yeah. Uh, citizens can go, see ya. Yeah. You can literally write a letter, send an email and be like, we're no longer SBC. The SBC can't come take your property. Right. They can't fine you for that. And that's different than other denominations, yes. by the way. Yeah, yeah, because if you try to break out of the PCA right. or the PCUSA you're right. or the Anglican Meth- Church, right. the Methodist Church, they'll go, your building is ours. Right. We own your building. The denomination owns the yes. building. And yes. a lot of times too, just so you know, that's because I know for Methodists, they they pay like for 40% of the churches Absolutely. that get built. Yes. So the denomination actually helps in different Absolutely. ways. Absolutely. So right. there's a financial commitment to Right, it. right. And so because of that, because we are a free, uh, uh, free voluntary association of like-minded churches, at least that's the organizing structure, that's how the SBC has tried to embody this biblical principle of church cooperation and participation. I don't think any church leader, any Christian can say, I want to be a part of a church that isn't meaningfully partnering and collaborating with other uh, sister churches. Because we see that in, in the script. New Testament. Yeah. It's, it's, in other words, the idea that you are on an island unto yourself, you do not partner with any, and I think this is an important point, that you're that there is no affiliations whatsoever, sure. which honestly, I think infected some of the non-denominational movement in America to some degree. Sure. Um, this kind of ahistorical, yep. sort of un, untethered yep. church, uh, it's it's honestly an unbiblical version. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And associations are always costly. I mean, right. l- look at Acts. The church in Jerusalem under Peter's leadership is costly to Paul because they're preaching a, me- a Judaizing message. Right. Paul has to literally go in there and be like, you guys are preaching a false gospel <laughs> yeah. and it's hurting the Gentile mission. Yeah. Associations are always costly. And right. the Bible is aware that your associations with other churches are not going to just be all rainbows and sunsets. Right. Right. Um, and that's okay. That is a cost of collaboration and association in a broken world. Right. But w- to what extent do you want to undertake that cost? is usually going to be measured by what kind of benefit you think it produces for your people as a formative benefit and for the world, for mm. the kingdom benefit. Mm. And I think many Baptists are asking the question, is the Southern Baptist Convention producing a tangible benefit to the formation of our people and to the going forth of the kingdom in a way that is commensurate with the cost of being associated. Mm. And because social cost has risen to such an extreme, right. partly because of exposure of information, partly because of you know the, the great reckoning that's happening culturally with institutions, many Baptists are saying, no, mm-hmm. it's not. Right. I, for the last, you know, I've been, I've been serving in Baptist churches uh, since I was 20 years old. Mm. So I've had 13 years in Southern Baptist life. Uh, my, I, my father's a Southern Baptist pastor who's pastored a Southern Baptist church for 27 years. Wow. I, I have sem- degrees from two different Southern Baptist seminaries and pastor currently a Southern Baptist church plant. Yeah. Um, I, my Baptist credentials are thorough for yeah. among my peers. Yeah. And you know personally I do. that I have argued yes. vociferously yeah. for the viability of the Southern Baptist Convention. Right. And it has, it has year over year, 
that belief has been shaken. Yeah. For the last five or six years. Yeah. And not because problems started five or six years ago, right. but because it has become more and more a question of whether or not the SBC is an institution that can even be directed by its own governance any longer. Mm. And if it can't, then even if you want to stay as an agent of reform, the reform levers are broken. Right. Which goes, well, then what are we doing? How do if, you... we, if we can't change. So I think a lot of Southern Baptists are in a place where they either need to stay loud or they need to leave humbly. Yeah. Then you got to stay loud and say, hey, we're here and we are going to be here and we will be here. Like you will know that we're here right. and we've got some things to say. Right. And you will need to mobilize your churches. Yeah. Um, if you're going to stay in the SBC at this point, if you're going to stay in any denomination at this point, you're going to have to be prepared to make a compelling case to your people for why you are staying. Yeah. Um, because and then mobilize them towards that change. very change. Absolutely. Right. Uh, because if not, then you're basically going to be paying all of the cost with very little of the benefit. Mm. And it's not how the Southern Baptist system was set up, and yet it is how it has begun to work. And there's, we can't get into all of that. There's a thousand reasons for that. Um, right. But uh, but yes, we are in a position right now where I would say uh, it is not. Uh, there is a anti-institutional narrative on the left that has to be dismissed. There is a uh, uncritical embrace of institutional life on the right that has to be dismissed. And the middle road, regardless of institution, and for church leaders, it's going to have a lot of denominational repercussions. There's the middle way, which is going to have to be a critical, self-aware, uh, convictionally driven, but compromise-willing collective that goes we're going to stay here and change or we're going to build something new mm. where we can do that. Well, I'm just waiting for you to build it and uh, then no. we'll, uh, <laughs> Kyle, thank you so much, man, yeah, honestly. Man. And I think, um, a couple of things that we just said, you know, uh, denominations aren't Christianity, but affiliating with our brothers and sister church, or with our sister churches, but with our brothers and sisters, that is biblical. And so, man, I I know along with you, we'll be praying, praying for the future of these institutions and denominations and that we would go where God guides us. So man, thank you again. Thank yep, you for being be here. here. Thank you for enlightening us. I hope you can, I hope we can do this again. So if you want to come back, you're always a friend of the show. Thanks, Adam. Glad All to be here. Thank you for listening to Culture Matters. Today's episode was recorded and mixed by Chris Starrett and produced by David Roark. If you like what you heard, please give us a great review where you listen to the podcast. Also, follow us on Instagram. Thanks and God bless.